In 2 Corinthians chapter 11, Paul writes, Oh, that you would bear with me in a little folly. And indeed, you do bear with me. For I am jealous for you with a godly jealousy. For I have betrothed you to one husband that I may present you as a chaste virgin to Christ. But I fear lest somehow as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness. So your minds may be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. For if he who comes preaches another Jesus whom we have not preached, or if you receive a different spirit which you have not received, or a different gospel which you have not accepted, you may well put up with it. For I consider that I am not at all inferior to the most eminent apostles. Even though I am untrained in speech, yet I am not in knowledge, but we have been thoroughly manifested among you in all things. Did I commit sin in humbling myself that you might be exalted because I preached the gospel of God to you free of charge? I robbed other churches, taking wages from them to minister to you. And when I was present with you and in need, I was a burden to no one for what I lacked. The brethren who came from Macedonia supplied and in everything I kept myself from being burdensome to you. And so I will keep myself as the truth of Christ is in me. No one shall stop me from this boasting in the regions of Achaia. Why? Because I do not love you. God knows But what I do, I will also continue to do that I may cut off the opportunity from those who desire an opportunity to be regarded just as we are in the things of which they boast for such are false apostles and deceitful workers transforming themselves into apostles of Christ. And no wonder for Satan himself transforms himself into an angel of light. Therefore, it is of no great thing if his ministers also transform themselves into ministers of righteousness, whose ends will be according to their works. Paul's attention is going to now focus on false apostles and false teachers who preach another gospel, another Jesus with another spirit. Paul will speak of his own jealousy over the church in verses one and two, his concerns regarding the church in verses three and four. His service to the church in verses five through twelve and a description of the enemy. And in this particular instance, the enemy are a group of false teachers who have wormed their way into the church. Judaizers who deceive the church, who reject Paul's authority, who reject the gospel of grace and the claims of Christ. And they embrace a false Jesus and a false gospel and a false authority. How do they operate? Well, Paul will describe their tactics. 
They operate in the same way that Satan operates in verse 3. They masquerade as an angel of light in verse 14. They follow their own master, Satan, in verse 15. And who are these people? Who are the Judaizers? They are Jewish believers in Christ who insist that Gentiles must be circumcised and they must follow the law of Moses. And this issue has been dealt with in Acts chapter 15, verses 1 through 29, in Galatians chapter 2, verses 1 through 5. The net effect is they're embracing a gospel that says you're saved by grace through faith plus something else. With doing this and doing that and doing this and doing that. And the laundry list never seems to end. And so the false apostles... They want to destroy Paul's influence and they want to undermine his ministry. They want to gain control of the ministry for themselves. And so the false apostles are going to use seduction, deception and lies as their weapons of choice. And so verse one. Oh, that you would bear with me in a little folly. And indeed, you do bear with me. Paul is going to use a little irony and a touch of sarcasm to make a point. Paul uses the term, oh, that you would bear with me in a little folly. The word translated folly is from a root word in the Greek language, which is Afron, which means senseless or foolish. So Paul doesn't want to draw attention to himself. Paul doesn't like to talk about himself. Paul doesn't want to boast in himself. So the folly is Paul's way of saying, I hate to do this. I really don't want to do this. I want you to just put up with me for a moment I need to explain my role and my credentials as an authentic apostle, as an ordained representative of the Lord Jesus. I don't really want to do it, but I see the need. And he's going to explain why, because he's jealous for the church in verse two. He's generous with the church in verses seven through twenty one. And so he is a caring shepherd and he's forced to boast because he has a godly jealousy for the Corinthians, a growing fear that they are going to be deceived in verse three, because the Corinthians continue to express a fascination and admiration For false teachers, false gospels, false authorities. And that's why Paul says, for I'm jealous for you with a godly jealousy, for I have betrothed you to one husband that I may present you as a chaste virgin to Christ. So Paul is going to be using a metaphor. He admits to jealousy. But remember, this isn't the sinful, self-absorbed kind of a jealousy. For I'm jealous for you with a godly jealousy. What does that mean? Probably most of you who have had experiences with jealousy, it hasn't been a good experience. It's been a bad experience. 
It isn't a godly jealousy. You see, an ungodly jealousy is the kind of burning passion that seeks self-interest. This is the difference between self-interest and godly interest that Paul is pointing out. Godly jealousy is the kind of burning passion that seeks the welfare of another. It is a love for another. It's often manifested in cultures and societies, typically when a person has a complete commitment to helping someone else out. You might see it for a husband who wants to protect his family. More often you see it in a mother who is willing to make amazing sacrifices in order to ensure the well-being of her children. And so Paul is admitting to the kind of jealousy, the kind of burning passion that wants to make sure that things are going to go right. And so the word translated betrothed, by the way, is an interesting word. And it only appears here in the Greek New Testament. It's the Greek word harmadzo. You know that word. It comes from a word harmos. It's the origin of the word harmony. In our language, it's a borrowed word from their language. Paul uses the metaphor of a proud father who wants to present his pure daughter to a noble suitor. Paul wants to offer to Jesus a church that is pure, unadulterated, loyal to both parents and suitor. He uses the metaphor, a chaste virgin to Christ, because Paul is using this metaphor to describe the spiritual condition of the church. And remember, the spiritual condition of the church is likened to a marriage and purity and impurity. So Paul's desire is for a church that is pure. For what reason? Because Jesus is preparing a church that is pure and chaste. Why must Paul bring up the subject of spiritual purity and integrity? Because there's a problem. Because some people were drifting. They were drifting away. From Jesus, they were drifting away from the gospel. They were introducing a false spirit. So the defense against spiritual adultery is faithfulness to Jesus and faithfulness to the gospel and faithfulness to the Bible. And so Paul's ministry of discernment is isn't rooted and grounded in a desire to show off his intelligence or amaze all of his friends with his incredible knowledge. Paul is not. A first century Bible answer man who is looking to satisfy the curious or the lazy Christian who's unwilling to do the hard work of personal study. Paul isn't saying these things or writing these things to show off. But he is pretty smart. He is pretty dedicated. He is pretty committed. But part of the point that you need to be able to understand is what's motivating him to do what he's doing. He loves the church. He loves the church. And because he loves the church, he wants to guide them and guard them. But it begs the question. 
Why do we need discernment? What is it about us that we constantly have to be reminded about right and wrong and good and evil? Why is there a crisis? Why are so many people unfamiliar with the most basic Bible concepts? Why are so many people so far away from a biblical understanding of right and wrong and good and evil? Why are so many people completely detached from the description that the New Testament gives of Jesus and the gospel and the role of the Holy Spirit? And so Paul writes about the seduction and the corruption of the mind. Look what it says in verse 3. And we're going to camp here just for a moment. Paul writes, but I fear lest somehow as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, so your minds may be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. The false teachers have employed Satan's tactics and they've set their sights on the Corinthians. And the way that they've set their sight on the Corinthians is by attacking them in their thought processes, in their mind. When Satan wants to deceive and seduce, he targets the mind. So Paul lays out the strategy Used by Satan to target his victims. Why is he going to do this? He's going to go to extraordinary lengths to point out true teachers and false teachers, true apostles and false apostles. And he's going to encourage the reader and the Corinthian believer to go look at the tactics that I'm using and look at the tactics that they're using. Look at how I'm appealing to you and look at how they appeal to you. When Satan wanted to deceive and seduce the first man and the first woman, he began his campaign of wickedness by targeting Eve. And so why does Satan begin with the mind? Because I'm going to suggest to you that we're created in the image and the likeness of God. We are created human beings with the ability to love and communicate and have friendship and relationship with God. But much of our friendship and relationship takes place between the ears, in our mind, in our thought life. You see, our thought life is going to inform our love life. Our thought life is going to inform how we relate to one another and how we relate in intimate relationship. Satan targets the mind. The doctor says, you know what he says, you are what you eat. The psychologist says, you are what you think. The theologian says, you are what you think about mostly. You are what you think about the most. Satan knows the power of the mind. And no wonder he chooses it as his chief target and his battlefield. Isaiah wrote, the steadfast of mind... Thou will keep in perfect peace. In Isaiah 26, 3, it says, 
you will keep in perfect peace because he trusts in you. In Romans chapter eight, verse six, it says, for the mind set on the flesh is death, but the mind set on the spirit is love and peace. If you are preoccupied with love, if you are preoccupied with peace, then you're going to experience love and you're going to experience peace. But if you're preoccupied with something else, that's that something else is what you're going to be preoccupied with, whether it's anger or hatred or animosity or bitterness. Your mind is a powerful, powerful instrument that's been given to you by God. So that you will know him and love him. See, you might think that your mind is your own. But the Bible says, and Paul has already told the Corinthians, your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. You're all familiar. Every observant Jew would have known that the first and most important commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all of your soul and with all of your mind. And so Satan targets the mind and his tools and his weapons include seduction and deception. And remember, in the opening chapters of the book of Genesis, he is going to target Adam and Eve. The Bible says in Revelation chapter 12, verse 9, the serpent of old, who is called the devil and Satan, who deceives the whole world, John 8:44 says there is no truth in him for he is a liar and the father of lies and so Jesus points out particularly that he is the originator of lies he's the father of lies he traffics in lies he communicates via lies and again we have to ask and answer the question okay how did satan tempt eve you'll remember how the story goes in the opening chapters of Genesis. Remember, they're in the Garden of Eden. And Satan has a conversation with the woman in chapter three. Now, the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field, which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, has God indeed said you shall not. Eat of every tree of the garden. I wanted to do the Geico lizard because that's how I imagine Satan speaks. Sort of like the Geico lizard. But I decided not to. And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the trees. We may eat the fruit of the trees of the garden. But of the fruit of the tree, which is in the midst of of the garden, God has said, you shall not eat it, nor shall you touch it, lest you die. Then the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. How does he tempt Eve to start with? He questions God's word. You'll notice that he doesn't begin with saying, God never said that, or God doesn't speak, or there's no such thing as God. Because that's ridiculous. That doesn't really work with most people. And it certainly doesn't work with you. There are people, wicked people, immoral people, um, people who are completely detached from reality, who will begin by saying there is no God and he's never spoken, but the Bible makes it abundantly clear. Only the fool has said in his heart there is no God. 
You see, people have to go to extraordinary lengths to convince themselves that there is no God and that he's never spoken. So Satan begins with questioning God's word. Indeed, has God said Satan doesn't deny that God speaks. He simply questions whether God really said what Adam and Eve think that he said. Maybe you've misunderstood God, Satan's clever lie. Maybe you don't understand the Bible. Maybe you have misunderstood the instructions. Maybe you have misunderstood things. And, and you see, that's Satan's clever lie. You owe it to yourself to rethink what God has said. Does the Bible really say that? And once someone convinces you that the Bible really says it, then the next question you, you ask is, does the Bible really mean that? Has God really said it and does God really mean it? But Satan wasn't content to question God's word. He will question God's word and then he will, in fact, deny God's word. You shall surely not die. You know, it's one small step from questioning God's word to denying God's word. And then Satan sets the trap. He will question God's word. He will deny God's word. But Satan isn't content to question or deny. He will then substitute God's word with his own information. And this is the pattern of the false teacher. This is the pattern which false teachers use in order to seduce. Induce people into believing things that aren't true. He substitutes God's will and God's word with his own lie. What does he say? You won't die. As a matter of fact, just the opposite will happen. If you partake of this fruit, then you will be like. Ooh. And there it is. Satan tempts them with an even greater privilege to be like God. And by the way, that's his not so secret ambition. Satan's not so secret amb ambition is to substitute the claims of God for his own claim, the authority of God for his own authority, the privileges of God for his own privileges. He wants to make them his own. And how does Eve respond to Satan? She makes three mistakes that would lead her to seduction and fall. Number one, she takes away from God's word, Genesis 2:16, from any tree of the garden you may eat freely. Eve omits the word freely. Then she embraces another subtle message. God is holding out on me. By the way, the first step is to question or forget God's grace and goodness and then entertain the notion that God doesn't want what's best, doesn't want what's right, doesn't want what's good. And so the next mistake that she makes is she, the first mistake that she makes is she subtracts from God's word. The second mistake that she makes is she adds to God's word. She says, not only that you shouldn't eat it, she says, we, we can't eat it and we can't even touch it. Was there a prohibition against touching the fruit? 
No. So why in her own mind did she make that up? It's because that's the human tendency. It's to draw a circle or build a fence around God's command. God says, don't eat the fruit. Here's what we'll do. We'll build a fence so we don't even touch the fruit. Because if you touch the fruit, you might be tempted to eat the fruit. And so here's what we'll do. In order to avoid eating the fruit, we'll also avoid touching the fruit. But that's what we intuitively do. We build these little borders so that we don't have to worry about transgressing those borders. And finally, she changed God's word. God did not say, lest you die. God said, for in the day that you eat from it, you shall surely die. It says in Genesis chapter 2, verse 17. The reason why I'm even bringing this up, because you might say, isn't that kind of being a, a little bit, you know, Aren't you being a, a little overly sensitive? Well, let me help you understand the sensitivity. God makes a statement. And then the woman makes a statement. The woman's statement lightens the consequence. It softens the consequence. And see, this becomes an important issue and an important point for each and every one of us. I would be less than honest with you if I said part of the challenge that I have as a Bible teacher is to not misrepresent what the Bible says. To somehow make the horror of sin less horrible or the power of grace less palpable because the Bible makes it abundantly clear that you're, we are to appreciate the horror of sin and embrace the loveliness of grace. And so. That's the dynamic. Do you want to get seduced? Do you want to get trapped? Take away from God's word. Add to God's word. Falsify. Trivialize God's word. And I, I want you to think about this. If you add to God's word or subtract from God's word or change God's word. All of these become avenues that invite you to be open to Satan's suggestions. And by the way, that's exactly what will happen when you take away from God's word or you add to God's word. It makes you open to satanic suggestions. And Satan, of course, at this point, invites her. To consider the tree. Eve. Look at the tree. And she looked at it just like it was a Coles catalog. <laughs> and she noticed that there were things that were delightful. Eve, look at the tree. What do you see? I see a tree that's good for food. I see a tree that's delightful to the eyes. I see a tree that's desirable to make one wise. And she had a choice. It's the same choice we all have. We're going to obey God's word or we're going to obey Satan's word. And she rejected God's word. 
And she believed Satan's word. And everything that you've ever experienced that's horrible or terrible or painful or wicked or, or horrific is the consequence of that choice. You see, the truth is the sum and the substance of this rebellion has resulted in every weird and wicked choice that has been made by everyone in every generation. Why is this important for each and every one of us? Because guess what? God accomplishes will by the truth. And Satan accomplishes his will by lies. And if you forget everything else that I've said tonight, if you can just remember that very simple line in the sand, Satan targets the mind. Satan's weapon is lies. Satan's purpose is to make us ignorant of God's will. And so if he can target your mind and fill your mind with a lie, if he can undermine or make you ignorant of God's will, then you're going to always be in trouble. Let me ask you a question. What do you suppose is the best defense that you have available to you to protect your mind? It's to fill it with truth. What is the best way to defeat lies? It's to tell the truth. Our best defense is the word of God. And see, now all of a sudden, again, we're back to square one. Why do you guys have such a preoccupation with the Bible? Why do you spend so much time opening it and reading it and studying it? I mean, why Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers and Deuteronomy? Why do you march through the pages of the Bible as if your life depends upon it? Because it does. That's right. You got the right answer. And so if you know the Bible, then you're going to know about the armor of God and you're going to know about the spirit of God. And if you know the Bible, you're also going to know about the son of God. And so then Paul draws attention to the simplicity that's found in Jesus Christ. In chapter 11, he says, but I fear lest somehow as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness. So your minds may be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. When he's speaking of simplicity here, do you think it's the simplicity of the gospel? Jesus loves you. He came to the earth. He died on the cross. He rose from the dead. That might be an interesting way of looking at the passage. But what if I told you that here, I think that simplicity means not just the simplicity of the message of God, that sins can be forgiven and you can have a right relationship with God. But here, simplicity means single minded devotion. It means instead of having a divided mind and a divided heart. Because a divided mind and a divided heart becomes susceptible to seduction and deception. So the way that you deal with seduction and deception is you have a single focus. It's the simplicity that's found in Christ. That means a single hearted devotion. You love him. You serve him. It's Jesus. You know, we, we sing the song. It's all about you. I'm coming to the heart of worship. The Apostle Paul wants the Corinthians to experience a singular devotion to the Lordship of, of Jesus Christ. 
And I got to tell you something. When you come to a place of singular devotion to the lordship of Jesus Christ, then the chances of you being deceived by a false Jesus and a false spirit and a false gospel become significantly less. But Paul will talk about embracing a false Jesus and another gospel. Look at verse four. For if he who comes preaches another Jesus whom we have not preached, or if you receive a different spirit which you have not received or a different gospel which you have not accepted, you may well put up with it. And I want you to pause for a moment. Men and women, boys and girls. We're going to put on our Holy Spirit thinking cap. Thank you. You're putting on the cap. And I'm inviting you to ask questions of the passage. What is Paul saying? One option is, well, if someone can come up with a better Jesus, with a superior spirit, with a greater gospel, listen to them. Does that sound right to you? Yeah, it doesn't sound right to me either. I'm going to suggest to you that Paul is saying that the Corinthians had an enormous capacity for toleration. They had an enormous capacity to listen to every Tom, Dick, and Harry that came on Christian radio or Christian TV, the Corinthians would have characterized themselves as being, well, you know, I just want to be open-minded. My friend Norm Geisler wrote in his book, I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist, he made the comment, I too want to be open-minded, but I don't want to be empty-headed. There's a difference between being open-minded and empty-minded. Phillips actually captures the sentiment of the translation. Listen to how he translates the verse. For apparently, you cheerfully accept a man who comes to you preaching a different Jesus from the one that we told you about, and you readily receive a spirit and a gospel quite different from the one you originally accepted. Moffat does almost the same thing when he translates the verse this way. You put up with it all right. When some interloper preaches a second Jesus, not the Jesus I preached, or when you are treated a spirit different from the spirit you received and to a different gospel from which I gave you, why not put up with me? In effect, here's what Paul is saying. I can't believe it. I come to you and I tell you about the real Jesus and the real gospel and the real Holy Spirit. And a person comes up to you and they give you a false Jesus and a false gospel under the guise of a different spirit. And you go, wow, those are the deep things of God. Paul contrasts the true and the false, the authentic and the artificial. And Paul minimum gives three standards. Another, a different Jesus, another Jesus, a different spirit, a different gospel. False teachers proclaim another Jesus. And by the way, the word translated another is an interesting word in the Greek language because it means another of a similar kind. Most of you are familiar with the words heteros and homos. 
Hamas means of the same kind. Heteros is different. Here, the word another means different, but yet of a similar kind. In what way? It's a different Jesus. In what way? It's a different Jesus who's similar to the Jesus in the New Testament, but not exactly. A different spirit, a different gospel, different word. Heteros. A different spirit, the opposite. A different gospel, the opposite. In other words, what does all of this mean? You've probably been around people who have said, you know, I was listening to to so-and-so on TV or I was listening to so-and-so on the radio and they were talking about Jesus. Okay. And what were they saying about Jesus? Well, Deepak Chopra got on TV and he says, Jesus is an ascended master. Jesus is yet one more manifestation of Krishna or Shiva. He is the sum and the substance. He is the eloquent light that comes from nowhere and then manifests himself among us. And what did he call him? Jesus. But is this the Jesus of the Bible? Is the Jesus of the Bible an ascended master? And so, when people say, don't all people believe in the same Jesus? The answer is no. So when Paul is speaking of a Jesus, he's speaking, of course, of the Jesus who's in the New Testament. He's speaking about the Jesus that's presented in the Bible, in Matthew, in Mark, in Luke, in John. He's talking about Jesus who is the God-man. He's talking about the Jesus who is the predicted Messiah of the Old Testament. In the Bible, Jesus is presented as the unique Son of God. He's one person with two natures. He is the self-existent, eternal God who acquires a second nature in the incarnation, completely God, completely human. He dies on the cross for sins. He rises from the dead. In the Bible, Jesus is presented as the unique son of God. Jesus said in Matthew 24, 24, for false Christs and false prophets will rise and show great signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, even the elect. Look, I told you before this has happened. It says in Matthew 24, 24. In Acts chapter 1, verse 11, as Jesus ascends into heaven, an angel says to the disciples, Men of Galilee, why do you stand gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will so come in like manner as you saw him go into heaven. A person in Islam will say, We too believe in Jesus. He is a great prophet, perhaps the greatest prophet if you don't count Muhammad. Does the Bible teach that Jesus was a great prophet? Yes. Was Jesus a great prophet the way Islam teaches he's a great prophet? You see, what they don't tell you in Islam is that Jesus is a man who was born a virgin, but he didn't really die on the cross. It was a switcheroo that was 
that was made right towards the end. As a matter of fact, Jesus didn't really die on the cross. He switched places with Judas and it was Judas who died on the cross in a terrible mix up. No, Jesus is not simply a great prophet like Islam teaches. The Jesus of the Bible isn't the manifestation of an invisible essence like Hinduism teaches. The Jesus in the Bible isn't an enlightened master like Buddhism teaches. The Jesus in the Bible isn't a created being that Jehovah's Witnesses believe. The Jesus in the Bible is not the spirit brother of Lucifer like the Mormons teach. The Jesus in the Bible is not the cruel victim of the machinations of cruel men who said wonderful things and he got in trouble and people killed him. And it's sad that he died. But that's the end of the story. Jesus is none of those. And so there are different Jesuses that different people teach. But the true Jesus is revealed in the Bible and explained in the epistles. He's the son of the living God in Matthew 16, 16. He's the one who is God in John 1, 1. He's the one who expresses the fullness of the Godhead bodily in Colossians chapter 2, verses 9 and 10. He's the one who died for your sins and rose from the dead bodily as prophesied in the scripture in 1 Corinthians 15. This is the Jesus who teaches that sinners have to repent from their sin and believe in him. This is the the Jesus that talked about a broad way that many people go down and a narrow way that few people go down. There's only one. There's only one. There's only one reliable source of information about the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus. Where do you suppose that source is? It's the Bible. Now, this isn't to say that there are no extra biblical comments that have no value or serve no purpose. But the value and purpose of something is made in direct proportion to what it says in relationship to the Bible. And so there's a different spirit. And so when Paul says, for if he who comes preaches another Jesus whom we have not preached, or if you receive a different spirit, What do you think Paul means by a different spirit? Pardon me? I think it might be demons. Clearly, it's not the Holy Spirit. There is a supernatural spirit that you and I know of called the Holy Spirit. And so I'm going to suspect that the false teacher is coming with a different spirit. And whatever that different spirit is, I'm going to suggest to you that it is, in fact, motivated by demonic spirits. False teachers had a great deal of charisma. They were attractive. They were talented. They were persuasive. By the way, do you think it's possible that a demonically possessed person could be attractive and charismatic and persuasive? I think so. The false teacher will also say, you know, the spirit told me this and the spirit told me that. Benny Hinn famously said, brothers and sisters, I need to tell you something. There are not three of them. There are nine. The spirit told me. That the Father has three spirits, and the Son has three spirits, and the Spirit has three spirits, or maybe seven. 
saying that you laugh because of the absurdity and the stupidity. But again, part of the point that I'm trying to get you to understand is that anyone can say anything and you need to be able to immediately ask, where does that where does it say it in the Bible? People will say the spirit led me to do this. The spirit led me to say this. They say that the spirit led me with my thoughts, my visions, my dreams, my impressions, my intuitions. But is it the Holy Spirit? John tells his readers in first John, chapter four, verse one, test the spirits. How do we do that? We evaluate what anyone says and what everyone says in light of God's word in the character of Christ and the gospel of Jesus. And so Paul presents two spirits. The Holy Spirit that comes into a person's life when they are born again from on high, when they are changed from the inside out in a foreign spirit. Paul has already told the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 10, the spirit searches all things, even the deep things of God. So if a person stupidly, wickedly and falsely tells you the spirit is speaking to me about the deep things of God. You mean apart from the Bible's revelation? You mean apart from what Jesus said when Jesus said everything my father said to me, I've said to you. So are you talking about something that Jesus neglected to say? Jonathan Edwards wrote, the spirit of God is given to the true saints to dwell in them as his proper lasting abode and to influence their hearts as a principle of new nature or as a divine supernatural spring of life and action real Christians have the real Holy Spirit living inside of them. The false teacher has a false spirit. J.B. Phillips wrote, every time we say, I believe in the Holy Spirit, we mean that we believe that there is a living God able and willing to enter human personality and change it. The Bible teaches that the Holy Spirit directed the apostles and the prophets who wrote the New Testament and the Holy Spirit will guide them into all truth. It says in John 16, 12 and 13, Paul had an impression to go one way. He felt compelled to go in a particular way and the Spirit of God directed him to go in a different way in Acts chapter 16, verses 6 and 7. So Paul didn't say, Whatever my impression is, well, that's what I'm going to do. Paul submitted to the Holy Spirit, the guidance of the Holy Spirit. Paul said that he proclaimed the whole counsel of God in Acts chapter 20, verse 27. Jude said that that we should earnestly contend for the faith that's been once delivered in Jude chapter 3. A different Jesus. Let me just be blunt. A different Jesus will always present a different spirit and a different Jesus and a different spirit will always result in a different gospel. So what exactly is the gospel? Paul has already told the Corinthians. He wrote about it in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 1 and on. Moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel which I preach to you. 
First Corinthians 15, one, which also you received and in which you stand by which you're saved. If you hold fast the word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain, for I delivered to you, first of all, what was delivered to me or which I received, that Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he arose again on the third day, according to the scriptures, that he was seen by Kephas or Cephas, then by the twelve. And then he was seen by over 500 brethren at once, of whom the greater part remained to the present, but some have fallen asleep. Some people have said this gospel, this gospel is too good to be true. And the answer, of course, is it's so good. It has to be true. What is the gospel? The good news. What's the good news that sinners can receive forgiveness? The good news is that Jesus comes. He lives. He dies on the cross. He rises from the dead. But the gospel is more than just the facts surrounding the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus. The gospel is also believing and embracing that good news. It's a faith that leads to confidence It's love that leads to obedience. Or you say, I believe this. I receive this. The gospel in the Bible is salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. So much so that the false teachers, the Judaizers, who have come from Jerusalem and who have suggested to the people at Corinth, if you were to ask them, what's the gospel? They would have said, you have to believe that God sent Jesus. Good. That Jesus lived the perfect life that you could never live. Good. That he died on the cross for your sins. Good. That he rose from the dead for your justification. Good. He ascended into heaven where he's seated at the right hand of the father. Check. And you now you have to get circumcised and you have to be a Jew. Okay. And what else? You have to keep the law of Moses. Okay. What else? You have to keep the law of Moses the way we keep the law of Moses. Okay, what else? You have to go door to door and knock on people's door and you need to tell them that Jesus came and that you have to get circumcised and you have to follow the law of Moses and you have to do this and you have to do that and you have to do this and you have to do that. And have you noticed that the that the list just keeps getting longer and longer and longer till you distance yourself so much from the gospel that it ceases to be the gospel? And look what Paul writes at the end. You may well put up with it. It's an interesting word in the original language. It means you bear. In what sense? In the sense that how is it possible that you listen to these whack jobs? Who present a different Jesus with a different spirit and a different gospel. And you go, okay, that sounds great. 
Come on over to my house and we'll talk about Jehovah's kingdom. Come over to my house and we'll put on our white shirts with our little buttons that say elder, whoever you happen to be. And we will go door to door and we will tell the story how the Bible didn't really get it right. And Joseph Smith did. And that there was buried in an archaeological treasure, golden tablets, which can be seen with magical glasses, which reveal a history that's completely detached with the Bible says with no archaeological evidence to support it, because I feel good about the story. See, you laugh, but here, here's part of the point. What is it about people? What is it about people? What is it about people that will cause them to believe in a Jesus by a spirit that's completely foreign to the Bible, a gospel that doesn't save you? What is it about us that does that? Because there's something inside of wicked people that don't want to come to God on God's terms. These are God's terms. Come to Jesus. Experience love and grace and mercy and hope and forgiveness in Christ. Well, what else? Nothing else. And then what will happen? You'll go to heaven. Do I have to go to your church? No. Do, do you have to read my book? No. Do I have to listen to your radio program? Yeah. No, no, no. That's not what it says. That's not what it says. You don't have to read my book and you don't have to go to my church and you don't have to listen to my program. Because you're saved by grace through faith. And that not of yourselves. This is why I constantly say. If you're wrong about Jesus, it doesn't really matter what you're right about. If you're wrong about the gospel of grace, then the chances are you'll be wrong about Jesus. And if you're wrong about Jesus and if you're wrong about the gospel of grace, then whatever spirit is motivating you, it's not the Holy Spirit. Because the Holy Spirit's job is to always and forever point people to the Jesus who's written about in Matthew and Mark and Luke and John. And we'll do the rest of chapter 11 in the not too distant future. Heavenly Father, we pray, Lord, that we as men and women would become familiar with the Jesus in the New Testament. With the gospel in the New Testament. With the Holy Spirit in the Bible. Lord, we pray that we would be men and women who are faithful to Jesus. Lord, we also pray that we would be men and women who would exercise discernment. Lord, we don't want to be critical and we don't want to be wicked and we do want to have an open mind. But Lord, we pray that when we watch television and we listen on the radio, that we would listen and we would ask these fundamental questions. Who is the Jesus that's being spoken of? What is the spirit by which it is being spoken of? And what is the message of salvation? Lord, we pray 
We pray, we pray, we pray that we would be faithful to you, that we would be found in Christ. And so, Heavenly Father, again, I pray for these men and women. I pray that you would love them and fill them with your Holy Spirit. Lord, I pray that you would stir up inside of their heart a deep conviction of the truth about Jesus and the truth about the gospel. In Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand.